Hey, welcome back to another episode of The Graduate Guide. Today, we're joined by Manas, and he is the founder of London Politica. Uh, if you could just start off by telling us very quickly what your journey has been with London Politica so far, and uh, yeah, how you've gone on to build it. Absolutely. I mean, firstly, thank you so much for, for having me on your podcast. Um, I started London Politica about four and a half years ago. Uh, effectively, I was still a student at LSE studying international relations, and I decided pretty quickly that I didn't want to be a diplomat, I did not want to be an academic, uh, and I definitely didn't want to sell my soul to investment banking or management consulting. Uh, but I did want to go into the world of geopolitics and do something sort of true to my degree. Uh, and then I found the world of you know political risk. Uh, and I realized that there's, there's an industry out there where effectively you can get paid for giving an opinion uh, on the world of politics, and that sounded really intriguing to me, and I sort of jumped in head first. Uh, and I realized quick, quite sort of quickly that this industry had two massive problems, right? One was um, perhaps on the supply side, it was really opaque, right? All the people that were analysts or were leading companies uh, had effectively transitioned in laterally from another career. They were all ex-ambassadors, ex-foreign ministers, ex-statesmen, uh, sometimes ex-civil servants of all sorts, right? But hardly anyone had gone in straight from university. And I saw nobody like me or nobody like me in two or three years' time that I could model myself after. And that seemed like a massive skills gap just because I knew there were tons of really talented people uh, doing international relations that could easily do this analysis. They just, it's industry was just too closed off to them. And then on the other hand, uh, because of how small industry this is, uh, it was almost entirely sort of segmented to one particular kind of clientele base. And that was effectively the Fortune 500 companies, right? The Fortune 500 companies that could afford to pay something in the ballpark of, you know, 300,000 to a million a year for, you know, a sort of glorified subscription to political risk analysis. Uh, the big banks and the financial institutions can afford to pay that. But it also means that, you know, charities can't. And nonprofits can and NGOs can. And so there seemed to be this massive gap where the kinds of institutions that would need political risk the most uh, were also the ones entirely sort of priced out of the industry. And I basically try to connect those two needs together and start London Politica and say, look, let's get a bunch of really talented uh, young professionals from around the world who have their own specialties and expertise together to advise some of these social impact clients. Uh, and initially, we did it entirely pro bono. Uh, so we started off working for really small charities. Uh, we kind of, there was just word of mouth effect and we kind of went from there. At some point, I found myself consulting the UN World Food Program. We were working with the Red Cross in Ukraine. Um, we worked with the British police. Uh, we worked with the World Economic Forum and did some of their advocacy on future generations. Uh, and at some point, I realized that I had a network and I built a skill base uh, that I could monetize. And so now, effectively, the company split off into two. One, which is effectively entirely a charity that does pro bono work for social impact organizations. And then one, which is a commercial but quite unique and innovative geopolitical risk advisory that works for corporates. There's a lot of roots I could take this from what you've said there. Yeah. And, and it all sounds amazing and massive. Congratulations. But I want to start at the beginning of your journey. So you arrive at LSE, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're starting international relations. Yes. And that's, I feel like, especially with the uh, UK education education system, it's not something you can study at A-level, for example. Like, you mm -hmm. kind of have to ha have had, like, a prior desire to, to study that. Where did 
that desire come from? What was your initial understanding? And through the work that you've been doing, how has that understanding of what international relations means to you changed? Yeah. Um, I just did a lot of MUN. I don't know if you're familiar with MUN's Model United yeah. Nations, right? And like, I recommend everyone to try it and to not stay in it too long because after some point it becomes your substitute for personality. Yeah. Uh, but I started doing a lot of MUN in, well, actually in, I think in middle school. And I did it for about eight years. And it was effectively, I mean, when most people were spending their weekends, I don't know, chilling at home, seeing their friends, I, for some reason, was going to these conferences, pretending to be China in the UN Security Council and, like, debating nuclear policy. And something about that was just really thrilling to me. Uh, And it was sort of adjacent to speech and debate. Um, And I found myself really interested in that world, realized I had to study something sort of similar to it, and IR stood out to be a pretty good option. Um, but to be completely honest, I wasn't very dead set or very clear that I wanted to do this. Just like two months before I'd applied to IR at LSE, I was dead set on doing business at Wharton at UPenn where I did not get in. Uh, and had I got in, my life would have turned out you know, totally, totally differently. And I'm almost really grateful that, that I didn't. Um, but I mean, certainly my kind of understanding of IR has changed from what it was, I guess, six to eight years ago to what it is now. I guess the biggest difference is I used to think international relations is all about the relationships between countries. And now everything I do is about the relationships between countries, but also all sorts of non-state entities, right? So uh, terrorist groups, NGOs, nonprofits, humanitarian aid organizations, but also corporates. And uh, the same sort of companies that we advise play a massive role in geopolitics. Uh, A lot of my kind of current research is around how tech companies effectively have their own foreign policies, often take independent postures on uh, intervening in wars, uh, often butt heads against national governments and and win. Uh, and so that's what I thought was the most interesting bit about it. One thing I'm super interested with you is that, obviously, you have a company, you do run a company now, but you're still in academia. You know, you've gone from LSE to Oxford, back to LSE, right? Yeah. And for example, um, I, I, this podcast technically is a startup, right? And and I was doing it all through university. And then when I graduated, I continued doing it. And I guess I, I felt like more of a founder. And then I've since recently taken a job, but I don't think it stopped me from feeling like a founder just because I work for someone else now. And and I wonder if it's a similar relationship with you where um, you know, you've stayed in academia and just because you are an academic, it doesn't stop you making being a founder. If anything, it amplifies it because it continues to help you learn about the field that your company operates within. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't even really, to be honest, think of myself as an academic. I'm only six months into a PhD, and I certainly um, am fairly confident I'm not going to go into academia full-time, running the company is what I want to do. But, I mean, the reason I did the PhD is because I looked around and I saw all these political risk consultants, you know, 10, 20 years ahead of me, and I saw that the difference between them and management consultants had shrunk a lot more than I'd initially expected, right? Effectively, these people were running political risk companies, but were just managing people on day-to-day tasks, uh, were treating due diligence projects like they were management consultant projects, right? It, it kind of felt like they almost lost their flair or their touch. And I wanted to know that even if I was running a company, working with businesses, I still actually knew the bread and butter of what I was advising them on. Um, and I'd found this really interesting field that I thought doing a PhD in would actually help me gain the expertise to then go and consult tech companies and, and consult in the world of AI governance. 
uh, and on that intersection. And so I thought it complemented quite well. Uh, and the other thing is I think people have a lot of misconceptions about PhDs. Um, I think I'm, I mean, in my cohort of eight, I'm probably the one that's most clearest in that they don't want to go into academia. Most people are still keeping the door open or are committed to it. Um, but you can certainly do a PhD, and if you know that from the start, uh, then you can, you know, you don't really have to commit to a lot of the work that you would have to do to be an academic. You don't have to do the extra research workshops. Uh, you don't have to teach as much. You don't have to write for a journal. You don't have to get papers published. And that, you know, significantly whittles down your workload. Um, but that's basically why I do what I do. So you started your company as an undergrad, right? And yeah. how did you like balance your time as a stud as you know, during studies? And like, what advice would you give to undergrads who are looking to start a company or startup in like their first or second year of university? Yeah, uh, I mean, it was it was a little bit easier for me than it is probably for anyone now, just because I started this at the peak of COVID, right? And so, like, I still remember it was March time. We'd just been sent home from university. Uh, all my exams suddenly had been turned into 24-hour exams that I knew I didn't really have to study for. Uh, and so then I had effectively three to four months on my hands in front of my laptop of not seeing friends. and I had to do something with that. Uh, and I, I ended up coming out with this. And I'm honestly not even sure, had COVID not happened, that I would have done the same thing, right? Maybe I would have been too involved with university societies and the day-to-day -day socialization to, to be able to commit to this properly that you sort of need to in that first couple of months. I mean... My biggest advice to sort of uh, people that want to be entrepreneurs uh, is to have a really, really strong why about why you want to do this. Uh, just wanting to be an entrepreneur isn't nearly enough. In fact, I'd say that's a distraction, right? Anyone who says, I want to be an entrepreneur, but I haven't found my idea yet, I think is totally bullshit. Uh, because it means you're searching uh ultimately for for nothing and you don't really know where the gap in the market is you don't really know what your product is but you just know that you want to be your own boss and and you know you don't want to get in the rat race of a sort of nine to five job and i think that comes with a lot of uh sort of illusions of what entrepreneurship is and how uh glorious it can be that, that frankly just are so far from the truth um i think the best reason to be an entrepreneur is if you've you know, had a little bit of experience, no matter how little, in some market, in some industry, in some space, and you found one particular gap that nobody else is attending to, and you think there's something unique about you or the people that you know or something that you can create that fills that gap, um, and you have, honestly, the privilege and the safety net to be able to pursue that, right? Uh, lots of people can't afford to, say, not get a first in university because whatever their plan B is requires that. Um, if all those things line up for you, then entrepreneurship is a fantastic kind of pathway. But those, I think, are like the bare bones. I'm really glad you said that. And I completely agree because I think, yeah, everyone is sort of lectured on you need to find your passion, you need to do this. Where I think like actually addressing a pain point that you're actually suffering yeah. and, and identify that other people are suffering with you and then working on that to see how you can resolve it is the, like the most motivating factor as someone doing something for themselves. and. Yeah, I think obviously you would have identified that maybe in the space that you were operating with, there were quite a lot of problems to, to deal with. How did you actually go about picking what you were going to try and solve? And I suppose with Daniel's question, like that might, at university, it may feel like you want to sort of save the world and do everything, but you can't do everything at once. You've got to pick something and do it very well initially to get off the ground. So what was that first thing for you? Yeah, I... 
I feel like it's really hard when you're in university to pick an end goal and say, here's the way I'm going to get there and here's exactly my route to that. I think instead of doing that, you just need to be directional, right? So at the moment that you're at, with the opportunities presented to you and the interests you have, pursue what you think is best, right? And then and then go there and see what that was like. And then in two months, ask yourself, was that the right decision? And then you pivot. Um, and my kind of guiding uh, force was always, I just wanted to do cool shit, right? Like I wanted to meet cool people. I wanted to be in cool places. And I found a very specific kind of thing fascinating, which is geopolitics. And so I, when I was starting this company, I mean, you guys have your own podcast. I started mine like three months in not because I wanted to be a podcaster, not because I was even very articulate or like, you know, was capable of having these conversations. I just knew that if you put a mic in front of someone, they'll speak to you. Uh, and often they wouldn't if you just asked them for a 15 minute coffee, right? Uh, and I'm sure you guys have discovered the same. And so my podcast initially, and to some degree even now, was just entirely a vehicle for meeting the people that I always wanted to meet and having those really interesting conversations. But I never thought about how does this instrumentally help in my career, uh, the fact that my first 10 podcasts never got more than 100 views, like, does that matter? Like, I didn't care about any of that, right? Because, I, again, I had a strong why, and it was very directional. I didn't, I didn't want a necessarily, like, instrumental endpoint with it. I didn't want to make a certain amount of money by the end of the year. And that's just a very small way of approaching how I did every other uh, aspect of my business. Every business is effectively, like, a million smaller businesses, right? We have a podcast. Uh, I have a sort of side thing of I speak at, you know, 6 to 12 conferences a year. And doing that and marketing for that has its own thing. We advise pro bono clients. We advise commercial clients. Uh, we're setting up all sorts of new sort of diplomatic academies. So you've just got to find the you know bits and pieces that you find interest you most. And then once you've decided on that, go all in for a, a specific period of time. And then don't be afraid to pivot if it doesn't work, right? Don't have your ego attached to it. Earlier on, you, uh, you de- demystified really eloquently like what people think about a PhD and, and academia in general. And I was wondering if you could do the same for geopolitics. Like as someone who's maybe in the first or second year at university, they might hear that word, know roughly what it means. Maybe it's to do with politics, maybe it's to do with geography. But what actually is there like as an industry, what kind of jobs could I go into within the space if you're not going to go be a founder like yourself? Yeah. So the geopolitical risk space, I mean... Firstly, it's kind of almost exactly as the name ascribes, right? It's, it's, we live in a world of immense geopolitical fragility, uh, and that's a unique factor. This wasn't the case 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it was much harder to run a political risk firm because you had roughly stable markets, you had roughly stable globalization, uh, and you didn't have an election every two months that could turn the world upside down. That's not the case for 2024, um, which is why I think it makes it you know, such an interesting space to get into. But the space itself is really weird and tough to navigate, in my opinion, because 90% of firms that do geopolitical risk analysis won't even outright call themselves a geopolitical risk advisory, right? They'll call themselves something a little bit different. So uh, there are, for instance, security uh, risk uh, consultancies or security advisories, right? So these are some really old firms like Crow, uh, like uh, G4S, uh, that employ lots and lots of people. And their primary job is to protect people and assets on the ground, right? They will send uh, armed bodyguards with you uh, when your corporate CEO has to go to Mali uh, in for a financial review and there's you know an election happening and there might be post-election violence, right? They do that. And that then involves geopolitical risk analysis kind of as an add-on. 
Uh, that's a very big add-on because that sort of defines how security risks in particular parts of the world are going to evolve. Then there's the space of kind of due diligence, uh, which is more related to business intelligence, right? Geopolitics is one aspect of that. But any time a company is bought, a company is sold, a company is divided into multiple other companies, uh, you have some sort of big financial transaction. You need a lot of due diligence on both parties have to look at the other side and the corporate shareholders there and the structure and everyone involved uh, and figure out exactly sort of what's real and what's smoke and mirrors. And some aspect of that is, you know, geopolitical due diligence. If I'm buying a company in Russia, uh, I have to understand, number one, how do I make that sanctions compliant? Uh, number two, is this connected to any particular oligarchs whose wives are sanctioned, but this is actually a shell company for them to hide that? Uh, and those sort of investigations can take, you know, anywhere from two to 12 months uh, to do. And I know companies and people that uh, get paid a lot of money to look at one specific transaction for a very, very, very long time. They will travel to the country. They will, you know, they'll take pictures of ships and track vessels and go through Jordanian corporate shareholder lists and use satellite imagery and use social media and speak to seven experts on the ground and learn the language. Like they'll do everything it takes to get into that. Um, and then there are, in fact, the political risk advice that call themselves that, right? There's, there's bigger companies like Eurasia Group, like Oxford Analytica, that focus more on kind of macro risk. So if your company wants to know about US-China risk, uh, about you know the next central banking meeting and, and whether rates are going to go up or down, you go to them. So before I go rambling on, I mean, that's a little bit of the industry, I guess, in a nutshell. To me, that sounds like really compelling as an industry and, and it'd be really interesting to work on. But it does make you think at university when you when you hear all that and, and maybe the complications about like how you can enter, who you have to know, like where the graduate schemes are. Oh, you know, I do know about consulting. I do know about investment banking. Maybe I'll just take that and work work out what I want to do later. Yeah. What would you say to someone <clears throat> like that who, to sort of convince them that not only is this a super interesting career path, but also a very essential one, like something we actually need people being funneled into? Yeah. I mean, uh, first thing is probably I wouldn't try to convince them, right? If someone's dead set on doing banking or consulting, I think more power to you. I think if someone is sort of stuck in the middle and doesn't really know kind of where to go, and if they're choosing those industries out of complacency and because they see no other kind of viable pathways, um, then it's a couple of things. Number one, I've got uh, three dozen friends that are doing investment banking, management consulting, corporate law at all the big firms, right? Uh Three quarters of them are unhappy with their jobs. Uh, and I know this in every possible way, right? They're, they're whatever amount of money that you think you're going to get paid, uh, you do, but you, know, you certainly don't have the time to spend it. Uh, whatever promises you're initially sold of uh, being able to work on a diversity of projects and being able to do management consulting to figure out what it is you really want to do, uh, you end up realizing are, are quite false because you work on these incredibly niche things uh, and you know you're not really sure whether that's something you're just stuck into or actually like, or if something you're you know you're just forced to do. Um, on the other hand, I think political risk is far more interesting to people that have a natural interest in these sort of subjects. Uh, but it's also not without its own problems, right? Number one, you're not going to get paid nearly enough, uh, and and certainly not as much as investment bank or consulting, at least in the first five years. 
And that is uh, many times a privilege in the, to be able to you know, take a job that pays less. Not everyone can do that. People have student loans and, and families in debt and all sorts of things. And that I totally understand. Um, and, and kind of beyond that, it's, it's a little bit of a trickier industry to get into because, like you said, there's no spring week for political risk. No companies will do you know, summer internships or vacation schemes uh, or very easy, you know, guaranteed graduate pathways. Uh, 80% of people who get a job in the space will get it because they message someone on LinkedIn or they email someone or they ask me and I put them in touch with someone or like that sort of thing, right? It's a very word of mouth industry. Everyone knows everyone. Um, and that sounds daunting in the starting, but I honestly think if you put half the time that you put into assessment centers and making these elaborate applications, et cetera, into just looking at, this is the area I'm interested in. These are the top three companies in that space. I'm going to sit down for the next three hours. I'm going to send the same generic message to 20 people who do that, who have the job that I want to have. If you just did that, I can guarantee that 10 of them will apply and five of them will end up getting a coffee and one of them just might have an opportunity for you or at the very least will write, like, sort of lead you in the right, right pathway uh, to a company that might. Uh, and if all of that falls apart, at least you've explored this area and you know that it's something you don't want to do. Uh, and so that, I think, is a really valuable exercise and is like step one to getting into political risk. Um, so you study international relations at LSE. How has your degree like helped you with your company? And now that you're like five, six years in, um, would you go back and change the degree if you're thinking about it with what you've learned um, doing your company right now? I didn't learn that much in university. Uh, I, I don't know if, if other people on your podcast say the same or if they say that the degrees are really, really pivotal, but I learned and I benefited tremendously from being at LSE and from having that network and from going to dinner every day with really like interesting and fascinating people who shared similar interests. And I learned so much from those conversations. But like, if you're asking me if I like, you know, sat down in my international relations theory class and if in week four I learned something that I still use today, the answer is absolutely not. Uh, it's a pretty core fundamental education to have if you want to go into the space, right? If you want to sort of take it off almost. And I would say it is important. Uh, but 95% of the things that I've learned that are really useful for the business that I run day to day, I've kind of had to teach myself, right? I've, I've either had to read books on my own time or kind of explore the space uh, by talking to loads of different people. Uh, or just had to put myself out there, right? Part of the reason I, you know, when I was doing this podcast is I'd be uh, so, so incredibly inarticulate when I first started, and I think I still am. Uh, but when I was first speaking to people, I mean, they they tell me, uh, you know, they give me an answer to something about, I don't know, U.S.-China relations, and I have no idea what to say next. And then over time, you sort of realize how to have a very basic conversation like that. That's not something you're taught by writing 3,000-word papers in university, Right. Uh, knowing how to deal with a really pissed off client because uh, something came up and you couldn't deliver a report on time. That's not something that uh, IR205 at my university could have taught me. Um, so I'd say, I mean, I wouldn't change it. If you want to go into the space, university degree is essential, go and do it. Uh, but be incredibly, incredibly like judicious with your time, right? Go to, as, uh, go to all the classes you think are useful and none of the ones that you think aren't, no matter how many angry emails you get. Uh, and I'm probably going to get in trouble with my supervisor if he ever watches this because I'm still doing a PhD because it's your time and, and you've got to use it in the way that benefits you best. 
I just think that's such a refreshing thing for for somebody at university to hear, and I I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, especially given the fact that at eighteen you're just told to narrow your your interest down to one subject and be expected to enjoy every single thing that they give to you. Like that's not going to get you any closer to knowing what you want to do for the rest of your life, like your career. You need to by narrowing down, you need to actually broaden your horizons a bit again when it comes to your career. Um, and I think what you were just saying there does lead me nicely onto what I wanted to ask you about, which is all these conferences you speak at, um, you know, it's very clear from this podcast, you're, even though if you don't think you are, you are very eloquently spoken. I don't think I've heard a single like or a but. And, and I, is that something that you feel like was relatively natural to you, that confidence to get up there? And even if you didn't know wholeheartedly what you were going to say next, like that ability to deliver um, and, and speak confidently on a, on a topic or... Was that something you just had to start and learn the hard way that, okay, I need to work, work on this myself? I mean, totally, totally had to learn the hard way. And uh, I thought when I was in university, I was like, I've done eight years of MUN. That's all that is, is public speaking and speech and debate. Like, I'm, I'm cut out for this. But doing that in a room full of other high schoolers and then getting up on stage and being 22 and speaking to a room of 1,500 investors about the top risks of the year, when you have 15 minutes to do it, uh, are two wholly different things. And I definitely had to learn about it the hard way. I mean, I remember when I was still like setting this up and I'd, you know, sort of email people to get a coffee chat with me. Like I'd be, I'd be panicking in the, like the 15 minutes before we jumped on Zoom. I'd be, I'd have a list of questions. I'd, you know, have everything I wanted to ask them. I, I wasn't sure how I was going to take it. But over time, you just learn it and you always learn it by doing it the hard way and by constantly, constantly practicing, right? Public speaking isn't one of those things that uh, you're going to sign up. I, I don't, I, maybe they work. I don't know. I've never taken one, but you sign up to a public speaking class or to like a, a course on it. Um, I think it's just you're, you're public speaking all the time. And, you know, when I'm doing this, this is great practice for me for when I do something else. Um, but I think the the initial thing that got me going and sustained me throughout it which might not be true for most people is that i wasn't afraid to fail like i i did my first podcast and i was always of of the belief that uh it doesn't have to be perfect i think perfection is the guise of insecurity uh and i i did it and if i like I, if i i never listened to anything i sort of uh anything i record or, or speak or put into public just because I, I hate my own voice and i i hate Kind of how I often put things into words, um, but I remember listening back to the first one, and it was so awful. And I remember listening to it right after it was recorded, and I still put it out. Uh, and, tell me about it. You know, <laughs> right? You you've done this what sixty times now. Yeah. And and I mean, you tell me, <laughs> has it gotten easier? Yeah, of course it has. I mean, yeah, like even what you were saying there about um, you know that that sort of ten minute beforehand. But I remember because I've always done this in person. Yeah. Like, my ways of coping were just like. They weren't healthy at the time, but like, you know, <laughs> you know, you have to, there's no other way you can sugarcoat it or get around it. Like you just got to put yourself out of your comfort zone. I think there are ways, however, and I'll be interested to think, hear it from your side to yeah. sort of, you know, you do have to put yourself in the deep end, but how do you give yourself, you know, a bit more buoyancy if you put it that way? Like, how do you prepare for that? That deep yeah. end. It's a good way of putting it. How do you give yourself more buoyancy <laughs> in the deep end? Wow. Came straight off the dome. Don't know where yeah. that came from. <laughs> um, there's a couple of things you can do. I think, number one, just firstly, going in there with like just blind self-faith and self-confidence, right? Uh, when you And just really small things. When I walk into a room and I'm doing a talk, 
and it hasn't started and there's five minutes to go, I'll go around the room and say hi to everyone. Uh, it'll relax you a little bit. You'll sort of get an idea of who the people are, what they want. I mean, almost any room you'll be in, at least kind of in initial stages, uh, the crowd will always be really, really friendly. They don't want you to fail. They're rooting for you. They know it's tough to be up there on stage doing what you do. You just don't feel that because you're standing on the other side and everyone has this really sort of monotone look uh, and it can feel a bit daunting. Um, I think go in there with a really clear idea of the key messages you want conveyed, but don't write down how you want to convey them. It doesn't work for everyone. It works for me. But I know at the end of this presentation, uh, say I want to you know, convey these three things about the American election, the risk of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, uh, and central bank digital currencies, right? I know what my key messages are. I know what my reasoning behind it is. But when I'm on stage, I just totally freestyle it. Uh, and it means that it's a little bit more conversational. It's a bit more natural. I'm forced to think on the spot. I'm forced to even like experiment with ideas and then quickly retract and backtrack from them when I'm speaking, right? And it keeps it more live and upbeat. And, and, then, and then your audience is sort of taking through this journey with you, right? They're, they're listening to the story along. Whereas if you're just reading off a script, no one wants to hear that. Never use a piece of paper. That, that is so funny that because like in the UK education system, I think with the way the examination is done, you're taught to like prepare, prepare, prepare. Like if, if anything over prepare, like you can't prepare too much. But then like definitely with things like a podcast, like when you prepare too much, it actually makes it a worse product because maybe you've got too many things in your head that you want to ask. Yeah. Like, and, and that thing about, yeah, looking down at, a screen or a piece of paper it does it doesn't just kill the aesthetic of it and the visual aspect but it does it knocks your confidence by the fact that you aren't believing Correct. in what you're saying right yeah um so yeah i mean with yourself i'm, I'm interested taking it a little bit away from the public speaking yeah did you have that same thing when you start building your team as a founder as well like that same imposter syndrome where it's like okay I've now got to tell people what I want from them when potentially you don't even feel like you're delivering that yourself. Like maybe that's me speaking. No, a hundred percent. Like it's entirely shared. I, so when I first started London Politica, we were, uh, it was me initially. And then I got three sort of colleagues to join me and we said, let's launch applications. And we had all these strategies to, you know, do it well on LinkedIn. Thought maybe three or four people are going to apply and maybe we'll take in one or two. In two weeks, we'd gotten about 500 applications from around the world. And in our first batch of recruitment, we ended up hiring about 100 people, uh, sort of volunteers, contractors based around the world from all the world's best universities, uh, many of them with multiple years of professional experience. I was 18 years old. I was the youngest person in a, in a company of 100. So, so I know imposter syndrome really well. Uh, and it was, it was, I mean, it was such a massive learning curve, right? Like part of it was uh, me asking myself, do I just pretend not to be 18? Do I pretend to look much older? Do I take off the date off my LinkedIn of when I've done my degree? Do I wear a wedding ring when I go speak at conferences? Like these are all things that people told me to do. Um, and at some point you kind of just realize like if you're already in the space to be doing it, there's got to be something about it or something about you that these people have believed in to join your team, right? Nobody's an idiot, especially in like sort of these elite London universities. Everyone's got so many things to do with their time uh, that if they've chosen to invest that in you, the, the worst thing you could do is be bogged down by imposter syndrome uh, and say, I'm not good enough for this. I'm not cut out. I can't give you right sort of sense of direction. Um, and so a lot of it was just, you know, faking it till you make it. Um, or, or actually another mentor of mine said, it's not fake it till you make it. 
It's face it till you ace it, right? You just got to put yourself in as many uncomfortable opportunities. Don't be faking it, but definitely aim outside your comfort zone. And, you know, after like the 67th time of doing that, you'll go into your 68th meeting and maybe you won't feel that sense of imposter syndrome. I mean, the only way around it, I think, is to start before you're nearly ready. So, you know, when you're at university, uh, how do you go about like finding people who are similar to you? Because like entrepreneurs and stuff. Because I feel like I, do, I study economics. Everyone's so set on like banking, investment banking, consulting. I can't really find those people who kind of want to make an impact in the world um, or like want to do entrepreneurship. Like how do you go about finding those people and surrounding yourself with those people? Yeah, it's a great question and probably not one I'll be able to answer well because I never really thought of myself as an entrepreneur, which sounds weird, but like I just end up starting something and I thought of myself as a, you know, as a geopolitical strategist, as someone incredibly interested in this world that wanted to help people uh, and, and start something creative. But like I think entrepreneurship and what an entrepreneur should be comes with all these like all this baggage of uh, how you're supposed to act and all the philosophies you should espouse and the people you should look up to and all the people you should look down to. Uh, and I never particularly had any of that. Uh, and it's only like in the last year or so that I get invited onto podcasts like these and say, oh, yeah, maybe I am an entrepreneur. Um, so I mean, Put I kind of... the Instagram by means you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, 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 if, if I'm here. Uh, <laughs> but I also, I mean, tried my hardest to go out of my way to not hang out with like entrepreneur entrepreneurs, right? Like I thought there was a lot of value in me hanging out with academics and journalists and investment bankers and uh, people that worked in nonprofits just because it was more interesting. Like when I hang out with my friends, I don't talk about geopolitics. I don't want to talk about my company. I don't want to talk about hustle culture or how hard I work or how, you know, cold showers and waking up at 5 a.m. is amazing for you because it seems like that's what all entrepreneurs do. Um, I just sort of want to chill out. So I, I don't know. So we kind of, I never really looked for that, uh, and I think it served me well, but I think certain other people definitely need a community around them. Yeah, it's a really hard thing to, to convey to someone that like, I completely agree, and I think it's, I mean, at, at the end of the day, you are a product of your environment, so it's definitely one of the key things to try and lock down before you even like start a venture, is like, have you got the right people around you? Are they gonna check you in the right way, hold you accountable in the right way? Are they gonna support you and not like, like for example, this podcast could have, crashed and burned horrifically and ruined my whole social like French group if the wrong people were around me but they were very supportive of of me doing it they understood why I was doing it and to be honest sometimes you don't know you've got the right people around you until you do something a bit you know like a maverick you just do something that maybe other group aren't they're like oh that is cool maybe maybe I maybe I like you know that's what I'm trying to say to you if there might be more people that just because you speak about investment banking and consulting at your EFS meetups, they might be like you. You've just not put that out into the world yet. Yeah. And, and it's really something that I think Graduate Art is trying to address is just talking about careers in a healthier way from a younger age. Like there's so many problems in the world that I think I could solve, like whether that's mental health, like having a purpose or like financial issues and people are a bit, their, their talents being allocated more efficiently. And I think like you're a perfect example of someone who has, you know, through trial and error, found the best way to allocate your potential and what your brain is good at like you could have been at business school but you found yourself here and, and I, I think to caveat everything I've just said there for that to be possible and for you to find out you need to have the wherewithal at a young age to start trying things at a young age you have to like have that delusional optimism 
about you and and where does that come from like is that family upbringing like can you just generate it out of nowhere i mean maybe you don't have the answer but i'm curious to hear your thoughts it's such a good point that you just made like you definitely need this like grandeur and delusional optimism to to think you're going to make it work like i was listening to this podcast with uh i think it was the ceo of nvidia i'm not sure and one of the things he was asked was like if you could go back and you know 20 30 40 years and you could start your company again what would you do differently and he said i wouldn't do it i like having gone through this massive journey and even having you know built one of the world's most successful technology companies ever i just wouldn't do it because the reason i did it when i was young is because you have this youthful optimism you think things are going to be 10 times easier than they actually turn out to be and that's a massive superpower right when i was first getting into this i thought well when i had my first initial bit of success I was like, in a couple of years' time, why wouldn't all these massive clients want to be listening to me? Um, and, you know, that was right to, to turned out to be right to some very small degree. Um, but having that optimism and having that naivete isn't, isn't a bad thing at all. And I think it's sort of, uh, I, th- I think there are structured education systems that are almost meant to stamp that out of you to some degree. Um, I, I think one thing that I was a little bit good at was I'd almost kind of get off to the idea that people didn't like what I was doing or that I was doing something away from the mainstream. Uh, and so like if I went to a conference and and there were several times this happened and sometimes I'd bring my friends with me to come watch this, right? And I'd get some like very hostile line of questioning uh, or I'd get people online that were hating or I'd get friends that were gossiping about, yeah, you know, what does he know about geopolitics? Why is he starting this? He didn't even get a, he got a 2-1 on his last essay. Um I some part of me just like really liked that uh, and I loved like somewhere in my mind was like in three years I'll prove you wrong and, and you know I think that can be spun a really negative way as well um, but yeah that, like that, those initial sort of uh, almost discouraging factors never put me off so you said like um, you get like hate, not hate comments but like people gossiping about you how do you like yeah deal with that um especially as like because i make videos and some people could be like oh he hasn't even completed his degree yet how is he able to educate people on financial literacy and stuff and i started that at 16 so there were a lot of hate comments and i kind of uh, struggled to deal with it and over time i've now learned to but how did you deal with it um i i don't know i I just don't i'm sure there's more like particular strategies about it i just just never really listened to it and and um I, what I kind of figured out is there's two kinds of people that you're most afraid of when you're starting something, and they're the complete opposite people, right? The first kind is like your mom, your dad, your girlfriend, your parents, like people really close to you, uh, and you care a lot about what they think and how they judge you and how much their validation esteem matters to you. And because they love you so much, they'll either uh, give you totally the wrong advice just because they don't want to see you fail, they don't want to say anything negative to you, or they want you too much to take like the safe path, right? Like like lot, all my brown friends struggle with this, right? And then the second kind of person is the total opposite, which is it's it's some guy on the internet that you don't know at all uh, who has the time of day to comment something uh, incredibly negative. And we got hundreds of those when we were starting out, right? Um, and people in the middle don't really matter even from initially. People in the middle will either be fake supportive uh, or, you know, if they're sort of distant friends they and they don't actually agree with it, they'll sort of put up a front. But if you can manage the expectations of these two, if you can say, look, like, I love all the people really close to me and I value their opinions, but I've got to do this for myself. And I can, I can entirely tune out the opinions 
of someone that's a total stranger because their opinion just doesn't matter to me for that reason. And the people in the middle will be always will always be supportive, at least in the first couple of stages, if you've got the right friend group around you. That's sort of how I thought about that, um, sort of what helped me. I think this conversation has been a massive breath of fresh air for me. And you know, excluding maybe that I'm I'm not taking on like a national um, crisis and problem like yourself, <laughs> and I'm just sat in a room asking some questions. I feel like there's a lot of similarities between how we think and and you know yeah, maybe our ambitions. And yeah, I've, I ask every guest I have on the same question, my final question, which is when you first started at LSE, you, know, you would have had a certain idea of what a successful career look, would have looked like to you. And then fast forward to where you're at now, having done everything you've done, what is your definition of success now and how has it changed? It's a great question. Um, starting out, I think my definition of success was pretty bog standard and mainstream, right? Uh, or maybe that what every entrepreneur thinks, which is I'm going to work hard and grind for a couple of years and then there'll be some inflection point and then it'll be all exponential growth from there. Uh, and I will raise tens of millions from investors and I'll have this innovative product and uh, I'll be famous and I'll be going around the world speaking about it. And like that is what success is, right? And what I realized what's quite false about that is it's all very exterior. It's all very... Uh, what do people think, right? How do they perceive me having this much money or having raised this much funding or uh, having a company where this many people work or like where I'm seen to be? And the more I've gone through life, you kind of just realize like nobody cares, right? Like you can have your two minutes in the spotlight, but it's really only going to be two minutes or maybe it's not going to be that. Uh, you will inevitably have this thing that you thought was was a point. I'll give you an example, like a really tangible one. I thought my first conference that I speak at, uh, that was like a real conference, not at a university, not at uh, somewhere in London where I travel out to a different country and speak to investors. I thought that was going to be like a game-changing moment. I thought the first time I would be on TV, uh, speaking on the news, commenting on a topic, game-changing moment. I thought people would like, you know, find my name, ring me up and say, we want geopolitical advice. None of that happened. Right? I went on stage, I did my bit, I learned a lot, I met some cool people. No one cared, no one, no one rang me up afterwards. I, I, I didn't go viral on LinkedIn. Uh, all the, so, so then I realized, I mean, and then I had to kind of ask myself, this was still an incredibly positive experience, but it didn't go in any of the ways I initially thought it would. Well, why is that? It's because you realize that all the things that end up mattering to you are just very much about you and very internal about your sort of experience interface with things, right? When I go to conferences, if I have three really fascinating conversations with three really interesting individuals, that matters so much more than being able to, I don't know, like increase my LinkedIn connections by 400 by the end of that, that trip, right? Uh, if, I, if I say something that really resonates with someone uh, and they come out to me and tell me that, that's way more than getting a nice picture of you know a big crowd that I'm speaking to and posting on LinkedIn. It, those things, just, no one cares. It just doesn't matter. It's, it's so important you said that because I think it's almost inevitable that you're going to have like an idealistic view of what this knock-on effect could be. And I think what you get better at is not achieving that idealistic aim. It's the bounce back to just like reset in your mindset after to just like, okay, no, let me just reflect on what actually happened and what I actually took as value and, and then proceed. Um, but yeah, listen, mate, you've been amazing. Really enjoyed today. Thanks so much yeah. for coming on. And Daniel, thanks for hosting the first episode. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much, guys. I really, really enjoyed this. Yeah. Appreciate it. Great.